You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Good morning. Have a seat. Welcome. We are so glad that you're here. Uh, If you're a visitor, thank you so much for being here. I extend a special welcome to you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Mark chapter 8. Yes, we're taking a little break from our series in the book of 1 John. Uh, My name is Tony. I have the privilege of being the pastor of young adults here at Southcrest and filling the pulpit this week. Uh, Brandon will be back at the 1st of April. It's good to be with you. Uh, If you maybe grabbed a copy of notes from one of our greeters on the way in this morning, I pray that you would uh, just follow along with me. As we look at Mark chapter 8, title of our time this morning is, Is He? Is He? The year is 2000. And there is a young lady by the name of Jessica Andrews. She is an American country music artist. And she released a song in November of that same year, and it actually became her biggest single to date. Now, many of you may know this song. It's titled, Who I Am. So if you're my age, you you may be aware of it. If you're younger, I'm not sure. But I want to read some of the lyrics. The chorus of this song that she sings goes like this. I, now I got to be honest, I've written this and I read it in the 930. It's tough for me not to sing this as I read it. And I promise you don't want me to do that because I want you to stay here instead of just leaving the room. So uh, I'm going to read this. I am Rosemary's granddaughter, the spitting image of my father. And when the day is done, my mama's still my biggest fan. Sometimes I'm clueless and I'm clumsy, but I've got friends who love me and they know just where I stand. It's all a part of me. And that's who I am. How many are familiar with that song? Yes. I think she was just like 17 or 18 when she recorded that song in the year 2000. Now, you may be shocked to find out that Jessica's grandmother is not Rosemary. It bothered me when I read this this week. Uh, That song was actually written by a couple of Nashville songwriters. uh, But Jessica loved it so much because of what the song communicates. And so as I thought about that song... I thought a little bit about me, and I thought about you, and, and where, where I want to go and take us this morning. And I asked myself the question, who am I? Do I know who I am? And to take a page from Jessica's song here, I thought maybe about inserting myself into the songwriting process. In my current context, meaning uh, where I'm at in my life right now, um, I thought my song would sound something like this. And you, you all are just going to have to go with me. It, it has no rhyme or reason. It, it doesn't actually rhyme. It's, it's just go with me. I am Richard and Eleanor's grandson. I just might be a spinning image of my father. I'm not sure. I think so. Uh, and when the day is done, my wife is still my biggest fan. I don't, my, uh, my parents are no longer with us. So I would say my wife is my biggest fan. But sometimes I'm clueless and I'm hungry. And anyone who knows me know that I don't, I don't just have one sweet tooth. All of them are sweet teeth. I love sweets, cookies, cupcakes. 
I'm, people come to me for information on the newest or uh, latest cookie, sweet, cupcake joint in town because I'm aware of all of them pretty much. But I still have friends that love me and they know just where I stand. And if they love me, they like to bring me cookies or at least go buy cookies with me. It's all a part of me. That's just who I am. Now, if I were to ask you the question, who are you? Think about that for just a moment. How would you respond? Have you ever really taken the time to put together somewhat of a concise but a serious answer to, to the, as a response to that question? Now, many of us have been asked that question before, and it's usually when we meet new people in a, in a large group setting, and you would come in and they would say, I'm sorry, I did, I, now who are you? I, I didn't get your name. And you would say, well, I'm so-and-so. To which I would reply, well, I'm Tony Ward. It's, it's very nice to meet you. Now, this morning, when I ask that question, what I actually mean when I say, who are you? What I mean is this, what makes you, you? What things do you enjoy? What makes you tick? What keeps you going? What motivates you? Furthermore, who or what do you identify with? This question of who are you is actually, I believe, one of the most important questions anyone could ever ask of themselves. And I hope to show you that a little bit as we look at our passage this morning. Now, more than just that one question, I believe that there are three important key questions that we are faced with when we wake up every day. Now, whether we are aware of these or not is one thing. But we ask ourselves or we get asked these questions and we answer these questions with the decisions that we make in our actions. And here they are. You'll see them on the screen. The three questions I think we get faced with every day. Number one, who am I? Who am I? Second, what am I going to do today? And then third, as a result of that, why am I going to do those things? What is the reason behind what you're going to do? Now, Those questions, among others, that are asked of us, uh, we are asked every day. And I think the way we respond to them is with the decisions that we make. And what is so fascinating is our answers to these questions reveal a lot about who we are as an individual. And I think it's fair for us to conclude that what we do on a daily basis, the decisions to do this or decisions not to do that, is dictated by what ourselves or other people around us expect of us. I begin this way this morning because our text is going to challenge us to ask a few key specific questions about ourselves, primarily because Jesus asked a couple important questions of his disciples. So as we prepare to look at Mark chapter 8 and dive into our text, my hope, my aim this morning is to get challenge you to think about The fact that following Jesus is much more than just calling yourself a Christian. Following Jesus is more than just calling yourself a Christian. I believe that for us, it really means to be willing and able and ready to live out what we believe about Jesus and the word, or maybe what we don't believe about the Bible. So look with me in Mark chapter 8. Uh, Before we read, let me take you on a quick journey just to give us a little picture and some context to where we're at. Jesus uh, is about, is meeting with his disciples and we're going to see an interaction between him and Peter here in just a second. But Mark's gospel, 
uh, is targeted towards Roman Christians, and uh, that's his primary audience. And evidence has shown us that it is highly likely that Mark wrote his gospel account in Rome somewhere around the time of 50 to 70 AD. Now, unlike the gospel of Matthew, Mark doesn't take time to talk about the genealogy of Jesus. Rather, when you start reading Mark, Mark picks right up with where Jesus began his earthly ministry by calling 12 men and then traveling with them to teach, preach, perform miracles, and heal people along the way. So this is what we see in the first several chapters of the book of Mark. And then we get to chapter six, where we see Jesus has been with these men for a little bit, and then he sends them out. Mark chapter six, we see Jesus sending out his disciples. So Mark tells us a little bit after that, John the Baptist gets beheaded. And then the disciples return, and then when they're together, they have an opportunity to feed 5,000 people. They continue together, and then we see this account where Jesus is going to blow their minds and walk on water. And then from there, Jesus goes on to heal many sick people. Jesus has a couple of more opportunities to teach and preach to groups of people. And then we see this little account where Jesus heals a deaf man. And then as we get into chapter 8, Jesus and the 12, the chapter 8 begins with them feeding another 4,000 people. And then right after that, Jesus contends with the Pharisees because they are demanding a sign from heaven that he actually is the Messiah. Which when you read that, you can see where Jesus might actually be a little bit of kind of frustrated. If you look at verse 10, he goes on to say, why does this generation seek a sign? Verse 17, do you not understand this yet? Verse 18, having eyes you do not see, and having ears you do not hear. Now what I think I would call, I don't know if we could call, this is kind of like a big hello moment. Like, hey guys, hello, it's me. But they're still not seeing that. Jesus literally just fed 5,000 people with a few fish and a couple loaves of bread. And they had plenty left over. Isn't that enough of a sign? But still the Pharisees are contending with him. So after that account, we see Mark records a time where Jesus goes on to Bethsaida and he heals a blind man, which to me is very significant, I believe, because what we're about to see here in just a moment connects to it. Jesus healing a blind man, he literally fixes a physical blindness. Like there is a literal physical ailment that this man has and Jesus heals it. And then what we see from there is Jesus is going to interact with his disciples in a small crowd And what we're about to see is Jesus is actually going to deal with spiritual blindness. So look at verse 27 of chapter 8 with me. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say you're just one of the prophets. And then he turned and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And then Jesus turned and strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, a couple things I want to point out before we continue. I think the fact that Jesus is asking his fellas questions here is really neat. Because when you think about what a typical teaching or discipleship relationship looks like, specifically in this context, it's usually the students who ask the questions. And the 12 disciples did that quite often. You can go through the New Testament and see where Jesus is doing ministry. And then he would do something or speak to a large crowd and he'd go off and his disciples would have tons of questions. But in this specific account, 
Jesus is asking the questions. But I think the second question that Jesus asks is the most important one. He turns and he says, but who do you say that I am? The Greek emphasizes the word you. Who do you say that I am? Which I believe, dear friends, is a question that every one of us on planet Earth will have to wrestle with at some point in life. And so Peter responds to Jesus. He says, you are the Christ, which again is a hundred times over a thousand percent correct. But Jesus's response to Peter is very peculiar to me. He turns to Peter and he says, okay, great. Tell no one about this. Now, if you're a skeptic, or maybe if you're early on in your spiritual journey or a, a new Christian, you, you might think this is strange. Uh, maybe this is a bit of a contradiction. Jesus is telling them not to tell anyone who he is. And this is interesting because elsewhere in the New Testament, especially if we consider what the church is for and what we're supposed to do, the church has been commissioned. The main mission, the goal of our church, even Southcrest, is to preach the gospel to all peoples, proclaiming that Jesus is the only way to be saved. But here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, hey, Peter, you have responded correctly, but tell no one. Now, why does Jesus do that? I think it's very interesting to ask that question. The verses that follow, I think, give us a little bit of light. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, he will rise again. Pause. Jesus begins to teach. It's an interesting phrase. I think it's important to note that the word teach here is significant because he's not merely telling his buddies what he came to do or what he's going to do. He is instructing them for their understanding of what needs to happen, of what Jesus is going to accomplish in salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And here's why this is so interesting, because what Jesus says here is very contrary to what they thought and what they expected and what they wanted they were expecting a Messiah who would come and overtake evil dictators and rulers and begin to establish a new kingdom. And this is why the Pharisees hated Jesus. They thought he was a threat to their established rule and authority. If I were to illustrate it in one way, I would think of it this way. If we were thinking up uh, in the next couple of years with the coming election, if I were to run for president, that will never happen. But if I were to do that, if I got a team together and a campaign together and then lo and behold, I actually win because, well, it probably wouldn't have to take me a whole lot to actually win because I don't know if the current guy's doing so great. But anyway, I win in 2024. I get sworn in and then I'm meeting with my team. It's literally the first couple of weeks of my presidency and I'm meeting and I say, okay, what do we got to do? What, what, what do we need to do to make this work? And he's like, we just want you to know, hey, look, our goal is to make you one of the best presidents in all of history. So great. How do we do that? What do we need to do? Okay. Number one, you, you need to stay here in the White House. And then I turn to them and say, no, no. I think what's going to be better is if I really just kind of travel the United States and I hit every big city and then I just go in and maybe kind of find a place to reside or maybe I hit the inner city and I just get to know the people and they're just blown away because no one's ever done that before. I said, are y'all cool with that? Great. What else? Well, I think it's important for you to get in front of a camera. We need you to address the people and we need you to be speaking on what, what the plan is. And I say, no, nah. no, I don't think that's good either. 
Maybe I've got my own ways and devices of how I can do that, but it's not what they think. And it's very similar here. Peter and everyone, when Jesus proclaimed himself as a Messiah, were expecting one thing and Jesus came and did another. Henry Nguyen, who was a Dutch priest and theologian, he's written many books, he said this, for Jesus, there are no countries to be conquered, no ideologies to be imposed. There are no people to be dominated. There are only children, women, and men to be loved. Jesus was given a specific task by God the Father, and nothing or no one was going to stop him from accomplishing it. And this is why Jesus responds to Peter with such passion and intensity. Look at verse 32 with me. By the way, I, I think it's kind of a big deal if people joke and call me Satan, but the fact that God himself is referring to Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is a big deal, but look, look at what Jesus says. Look at verse 32. And he said this and plainly, he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus turned and rebuked Peter and it said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, follow me. Now in these three verses, we see that Peter doesn't like Jesus's plan. So Jesus rebukes Peter by calling him Satan. And then he turns to a crowd. Remember, there's probably some village in Caesarea Philippi. And he begins speaking to them. And basically in this one sentence, Jesus sets the standard for authentic Christianity. He says, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And I'll talk about this more at length in just a couple of moments. But as we look at these next four verses, what I believe Jesus kind of lays out for us and what he's explaining is the deeper meaning and the bigger picture, the importance of following him and what that looks like. Now, many pastors and theologians throughout the years have often referred to this very passage that we're looking at this morning as one of the most important ver- section of verses on discipleship in all of scripture. So dear friends, I believe it would serve us well if we just leaned in here for a few moments as we consider these important words together. Now, as we read it, I want you to notice something with me. We got four more verses left, 35 through 38. And um, what I kind of want to point out is what I'm affectionately referring to as a double stuffed Oreo. Yes, I could have easily labeled this a sandwich, but if anyone knows me or people I work with know me, uh, I see this as more of a, a double stuff Oreo. And you might be wondering, now, Tony, are you literally referring or connecting scripture to America's favorite cookie? Yes, I am. Because what you'll see is there is a statement and then two questions and then a statement. So it's like cookie, all that cream, and then a cookie. Let's look at it together. Verse 35 begins with a statement. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Verse 36, question. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Verse 37, question. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Verse 38, here's the end of the cookie. Statement. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful world, generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father, and with 
the holy angels. Now, what's really neat about that, even though we've kind of illustrated our picture as a cookie, is those four things are actually declarative statements, although Jesus used them or worded them in, in, the, in the context of a question. Jesus is saying something in those four things. And here's why this is important for us to look at and consider this morning. I believe humans have done themselves an incredible disservice by choosing not to obey the words and commands of our creator. In fact, if we were to think about the entirety of creation, we, that's what I mean. I mean, I mean me too, but I mean lost people and saved people. If we were to think about the entirety of creation, we have done almost everything in our power to separate ourselves from the words and teachings of Jesus. And Christians, particularly in the Western hemisphere, that's, that's us, we've been so conditioned and cultured by the world around us. We've been deceived into thinking and believing a lie about what true Christianity is. And for most of us, I don't know if it's you, but I think sometimes we've regulated our Christian faith to just attending church on Sundays, giving some money, and maybe being a part of a small group. But if we were to really, truly examine ourselves and examine the scriptures, we would see maybe our perceptions and understanding about the Christian faith are maybe off. Maybe we would see that there isn't much of a cost involved for us. I know there are many different types of people in this room this morning. There are moms and dads, grandparents, and college students, and stay-at-home moms, and business professionals, and maybe even retired folks, or maybe even high school and middle school students. And what I love about the word of God and what is so remarkable about it is that it not only transcends time, but it speaks to every person at any point in history, no matter where they are at in their life. And I believe that Mark chapter eight, this interaction between Jesus and Peter and his disciples and then with that crowd is reminding us and calling us to something greater something far better than you and I could ever imagine, even if it means danger or difficulty. God's word is so important for us, and we have to be careful not to fall into the pitfalls and lies that we sometimes tell ourselves or that is taught to us. I believe that there maybe are parents in the room who, like myself, are struggling with finding the balance of work and family time, and church, and life in general, and then sports, and then maybe even school. I get that. It's tough. Maybe there are some men in the room this morning who have focused so much attention on one specific thing. Maybe it's, maybe it's being successful in the business world, but they've missed out on amazing gospel opportunities. Maybe there are college students in here who are trying to fight the balance of really wanting to go all in with Jesus, But then on the the flip side of that, they know that the world and what they perceived about the college life, that there are so many fun and enticing adventures and they don't want to miss out on that. Or maybe there are retired folks who uh, have loved and followed Jesus for many years. But in some sense, maybe even subconsciously, they've just retired from counting the cost of discipleship. So dear friends, can I speak into all of those situations, no matter where you're at in life, and no matter who you are, Jesus is totally worth it. Jesus is worth it. So let's quit 
believing the lies that Satan feeds us daily that tend to really live rent-free in our hearts and our minds. Let's commit to a local church. Let's invest our lives and our time and invest our money and all of our efforts into the kingdom of God. And know this, you will never regret it. Investing your time and your, your family and your efforts and your money into eternal things, you will never regret it. And I know this is true because as long as I've been a Christian, as long as I've served in Christian ministry, I've learned that Christians never really have a problem calling Jesus God. We don't even have a problem believing that Jesus is God in human flesh. That's like a crucial doctrine of the Christian faith. We believe that. But I think some of us have a problem living like he is God. I don't think there is anyone who has ever spent their life on this earth living boldly and unashamedly for Christ. And they did everything that they could to leverage their time and their family and their talents. And they did it all for Jesus. And then they died at some point and they stood before the God of the universe and they said, man, what a waste. I wish I would have done something else. I don't think that's ever happened. But I'm almost sure that there are plenty of people who did the opposite, who did those things or maybe didn't. And then they stood before a holy God and felt like they missed out or wished that they would have done more. 2010, if you look at your notes, there's a quote that I put in there for you. There's a little book called Radical that was written by David, uh, David Platt, excuse me. It was released, and I think really when that book was released, it really shook up the evangelical world. Christians flocked to bookstores to pick up their copy to really kind of see what all the hype was about. But what they found, I think, was something bigger, something greater, something even more challenging. Maybe what they didn't expect at all. Here's what David said in, in his book. We American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we are more comfortable with. A nice middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who for that matter wants us to avoid danger altogether. We want a Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. As we get close to the end of our time, I want to point out three concepts, three key concepts from this passage, and then we'll be done. Dear friends, don't lose sight of, of where I want to take us or even my heart. I know that we in this country have been given religious liberties and freedoms, and I don't want to take them for granted. I don't. I pray you don't, but I know just as fallen creatures what this kind of creates. We lose sight of what the Bible says and what's important, and we get caught up in the fog, and we just have to be careful. I think that's my heart this morning. So as we look at this, let me bring three concepts to your attention. And as I show you these three things, I want to ask three questions, and they really kind of connect back to those three questions that I began with, Okay. You'll see these on the screen as we go through them. In verses 27 through 30, as we read earlier, I want you to see the confession. And these are three things that are crucial to the Christian faith. But there's a confession. And the question we could ask or connect to that is, who is he? Or who is Jesus? Well, more than five times in this book alone, the author Mark specifically used phrases like Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the way he opened his gospel. You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. 
The demons even declare that Jesus is the Holy One of God, chapter 1, verse 24. Jesus, Son of the Most High God, chapter 5, verse 7. And in the middle of this book, Mark gives us another description that came directly from the mouth of Peter, which we read earlier. Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. So dear friends, the Bible is emphatically crystal clear. Jesus is God. And believing this truth is crucial to the Christian faith. In fact, can we just take a moment and celebrate that truth? Like the fact that many of us in this room believe it. Like, can we just pause? I'm not asking you to clap, but can we just pause and celebrate that? Because of the miracle that took place in your heart and your mind for you to believe that? Mark chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus tells us when that truth was revealed to him and he confessed that, he says, you are not doing that on your own volition, but this was revealed to you by my father. So God takes humans who are spiritually dead and quickens their hearts and brings them to life, which literally enables them to see this life-changing truth. So let's just relish and celebrate that fact. But this is why this is a big deal. This is why Jesus responds the way he did to Peter's confession. So whether or not Peter realized it, his confession about Jesus was a matter of life and death. And I think the same is true of us 2,000 years removed from the cross of Christ. So there's a confession. In verses 31 and 33, there's a confirmation. There's a confirmation. And the question we can ask is, what did he come to do? What did Jesus come to do? Well, I think Jesus said it better than I ever could. Mark chapter 8 records the very words where he was telling his best buddies. He said to them, the son of man would suffer many things. He would be rejected by many people. He would be, then be killed, and then he'd rise again on the third day. Now, when I say confirmation, I also kind of mean affirmation. Like for the Christian, this is a truth that we affirm. We may not like it. We may not fully understand it. But we agree with it, we believe it, and we affirm it. Christ's followers affirm this truth, and then we take it as our own. Because Jesus came not only to give his life as a ransom for many, but he came to model what godly living really looks like. And in doing so, he set the standard for his followers. Not to shame them, and not, them, not to belittle them, or not even to make them feel like they'll never reach it. Because the truth is, dear friends, we never will this side of heaven. We'll never reach that perfect standard that Jesus set, but that's what we strive for. And by grace and mercy, we continue towards that. Jesus calls us to a higher standard so that others will see what God is really like. And so that people will look at us and say, what, what, what is different about you? Like, I want what you have. So this is why Jesus tells us to be like him and reminds us of the cost of discipleship. Jesus calls us to radical faith because everything he did was radical. You remember what Peter was so upset about earlier in Mark 8? He was thinking about what a king and Messiah looks like in his own idea. A king in those days, in our days for that matter, would come and would expect many good things. And a king would come desiring to be praised and lauded for how great of a person or how great of a leader he was. And he'd really be sure to make everyone fully aware of who he is and his royalty. And Peter wanted Jesus to be that king. But Jesus didn't do that. He couldn't do that, nor did he want to do that. Instead of getting what Peter or even what we might expect, 
which is a safe savior. We got exactly what we needed, which is a suffering servant. So what can we learn from Jesus's model of a king? Well, if we truly belong to Christ and if we claim to identify with him, then I don't think that we should expect people of the world to love us. We should expect difficult times. We shouldn't be so dismayed when people treat us wrong. These truths remind us that following him is not going to be an easy thing, nor should we expect it to be easy. We count the cost because we know that God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are often hard, but they are always infinitely better than ours. Amen. Thirdly, third thing that I think Jesus mentions here is the word cost. I've mentioned it. I've said it all earlier. I want to bring it to your attention. There's a cost involved with this. And the question we ask is this, what does he expect of you? What does Jesus expect of us? Well, verses 34 through 38 tell us exactly what Jesus expects of us. But it's not something we often like to hear. Because Jesus' words in these verses are a direct contradiction to what a sinful heart really desires. Our hearts are designed in our sinfulness to say, me, me, me. And Jesus says, no, them, them them. Notice something here in verse 34. I think this is something I, 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 I'm probably even guilty of this. I'm just going to be honest and transparent. But as I studied this, I thought about this. There is a specific order to Jesus's words in verse 34. Look at them with me. If anyone wants to come after me, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, which is another way, dear friends, you could say it this way. They must disown themselves pick up their instrument of torture, and then follow me. Now, what I think is interesting is Jesus gives two prerequisites or two requirements to following him. And why I think this is so important is because we jump in right at the beginning. All right, I'm a Christian. I want to follow him. Let's go. But we've never taken the time to consider the cost of discipleship because Jesus specifically says, to follow me, what do you have to do? Deny yourself and pick up your cross. We have a natural tendency to skip over these first two important things and we get right to the following. And this is backwards. And this is why we have to be careful because if we do that and we fall into the pitfall of getting right into the following without ever counting the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. And then when we do that, I believe we kind of, in essence, create a Christianity that really isn't biblical. So dear friends, be aware of this. Be encouraged by this. This is the process. If we just do it Jesus's way, all will be well. The thing about following someone, I don't know if you've thought about it in this way. I I thought about it, just that phrase, follow me. There's usually always an end goal in mind. Like if we were to say, hey, as soon as we're done with the service, we're going to go out to this restaurant downtown. You don't know where it's at? That's totally cool. You can follow me. And isn't it interesting sometimes, I don't know if you've ever done that, if you've been the person following or if you've been the one to follow, but it almost seems like we turn into completely different people. Like you could be the safest, slowest driver, but the moment you have someone following you, you turn into a race car driver. Like, hang on a second, I'm trying to keep up. I think sometimes we even feel that way in our Christian faith. Like, Jesus, okay, I'm I'm game, I'm in. But hang on. Following someone isn't always easy. It's difficult. But there's always an end goal in mind. And I think Jesus shows us that. Jesus spent three years with 12 men, and he had a goal in mind. 
These three years, he taught them, he instructed them, he loved them. And when the time came, he was going to send them out. So over those three years, he did those little missionary journeys. He would send them to places. They would go and return. But Jesus knew, he was fully aware that his time was going to come and those men were going to go and spread the gospel in all nations. So that's the end goal. But when we think about that end goal and how difficult it may be, or what is it going to look like? Well, Jesus answers that question. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 records the very same moment that we read here in the, in the gospel of Mark, but Matthew adds specific detail that I think is interesting. Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Can you just picture that for a moment? Like, how good is that? What's probably going to happen there? I hope you're thinking more than it's just going to be difficult because what do wolves like to do to sheep? I know you're thinking it, so I don't have to say it. (laughs) And Jesus is telling us that's what life is going to be like. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I know you may be thinking, wait, why is he connecting serpents? What about Genesis 3 and that whole serpent thing? Yeah, yeah, I know. I get that. But we can't take away the fact that the serpent was crafty and wise. He used his wisdom for his own gain. We're not supposed to do that, but Jesus wants us to be wise as we are sent out. So when Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, I don't think it was a suggestion, not a suggestion at all. I, I believe it was a certainty. Jesus was warning these 12 men of what was to come. And I think historically, if you look at the church over the last 100 to 200 years, America really has become an anomaly in Christianity. Yes, again, like I mentioned earlier, we have amazing religious liberties and freedoms and praise God for them. But we know, you guys are fully aware of it, just as, just as much as I am, that there are brothers and sisters on the other side of the world who are not getting to do what we're doing right now. So let's praise God and be thankful for that. So we begin to close. I want to return to the title of my message or our time this morning. I want to pose the question, is he? I know questions have been kind of a theme throughout this. But I want to ask you a couple of is he questions and then invite you to respond. So my hope for us as we wrap up our time together is no matter where you are at in your life, no matter how old you are, what stage of life you're in or wherever you're at in your journey with Christ. Wherever you're at and whatever answer you have to these questions, I would implore you to run towards Jesus. Trust in this good gospel that he alone has accomplished with his sacrificial death and his perfect life. So here are the questions. Number one, is he worth it? Just ask yourself almost rhetorically, is he worth it? In your Bible reading and in your daily life as a follower of Christ, have you found Jesus to be worthy? Second, is he, is this Jesus that you perceive in your heart and your mind, the Jesus of scripture? I got to study and I did a little devotion on this text about a year and a half ago to some of our students, high school students that attend the school here at Southcrest. And we looked at this passage and I challenged them with this question, actually the statement. I said, the God of the Bible may not be the God of your heart. So is this Jesus that you know and are aware of and perceive in your heart and mind, is it the Jesus of this book? Thirdly, is he the Lord of your life? Claiming to be a Christian and living like one are two different things. 
Anyone can say they are something, but that doesn't mean they are. If Jesus is Savior for you, then by default, he is also your Lord. Lastly, is he, this Jesus, is he the true delight of your heart? Is he the true delight of your heart? Not the things of this world, not its conditions and what it says is right, but what he says is right, even if you don't like it. Are those things, those realities, those truths, the true delight of your heart? And I believe if the answer is yes to that question, the other questions I asked almost answer themselves. The invitation as we close is just for you to respond. We will have people up front, and I don't know how the Lord is leading you. If he's tugging at your heart at all, or if it's just something you know that you got to work out between you and him. And if that's you, I invite you to come and just lay it at the altar. You can pray. We'll have people up here to talk with. And I invite you to do that as we wrap up our time together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much again for our time and this word. Father, it's tough to wrestle with a topic like this, even as a pastor and a preacher, because I know there are areas in my life that could be different, more radical in a sense. Father, we know in your complete knowledge and divine sovereignty, we know that you hold and control all things and we know uh, that we will mess up. So Father, in those moments, I pray that you would encourage us and give us more grace and more mercy. Father, help us to live with radical abandonment for the name of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel so that others would come to know him. Thank you for this sweet time. Father, I pray that you would lead and speak and encourage and convict hearts as only you can. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 